Welcome to Percussion Perspectives, a podcast by Henrik Knabor Larsen and Håkon Steine. Each episode of Percussion Perspectives features one or more musical artists in conversation about musical education, practice and aesthetic and sociological perspectives. Claire Edwards is an Australian percussion soloist, chairman musician, artistic director and educator who has received the Australian Performing Rights Association's Art Music Award for Excellence by an individual three times. Claire leaps between her role as artistic director of uh, the Ensemble Offspring and concerto performances with all of the Australian and New Zealand orchestras plus many European orchestras. She has released nine solo albums and premiered hundreds of new works by living composers, and she is a teacher at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. In this episode, Claire talks about her transition from being a young pianist to being a percussionist and how she could draw on her efficiency and work ethic to acquire the craft of percussion in the shortest possible time. She speaks about how to cope with input from many different teachers, about artistic leadership, and how she works for gender equity in music. trying the hardest at ballet class, after which time I decided to focus more on my piano practice. So Claire, welcome to the Percussion Perspectives podcast. We're happy to have you here and uh, to hear about your um, insights. Can you tell us a little bit how it all started for you, um, your way into music and into percussion specifically, and how that uh, developed to where you are now? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Håkon. Um, I I don't know whether my story is similar to other percussionists, but I started on piano. So I, I think we either start on piano or drums, it tends to be. Um, and so I started on piano when I was five and kind of fell into percussion because I wanted to play with other people. And I always kept learning piano, but I played in wind bands on percussion, just sort of taught myself xylophone. And I just, I found it super fun. Like, and it was easy, of course, as, as a pianist, you know, you go from two lines to one line and it's like, oh, this is easy. I can do this. So I, I always really enjoyed it. And I just loved the social aspect of playing in wind bands. <laughs> I loved hanging out with people and the social aspect of music, really. So I think that, in a way, is what made me, in the end, go towards percussion rather than piano. Um, I don't think at the time I realized that the repertoire and the tradition of piano would have driven me insane as a professional. Um, so I think it was a lucky choice, in a way. Um, 
But I basically went to the Sydney Conservatorium not really having had any lessons. I couldn't play snare drum rolls. I couldn't play four mallets. I I couldn't really do anything. (laughs) I don't know how I got in. (laughs) I mean, I was a a good musician. I'd done my AMAS on piano, which is one of our highest levels here in Australia. So I definitely had a good background in Bach and, and all the classics and I loved Bartok and, and I loved things that were more rhythmic and I think my rhythm was always quite good but I had a, a long road ahead of me at the conservatorium because I had to practice my little butt off to get yeah. as good as kind of the level that everyone else was already on. How was your, what was your strategy then? Can you say something about how you structured your time? It's always been a... A, a skill of mine, I think, and I feel lucky that I have that skill. I'm a very, um, I'm a Virgo, so I, I'm very organized. I like lists and I like to achieve things. So I, I, I was always also very academic at school and I, and I like to get good marks and I was always very organized with my piano practice. And, you know, with piano, you've got to practice like three hours a day to do that, that really difficult repertoire. So I think that really helped me when I got to the con because I knew I had to practice a lot and there's a lot of different things to balance. Of course, you're going into university for the first time and it's also quite social. Um, But I I always prioritise practice because I knew that if I didn't, there was a possibility that I would be left behind and I'm a a high achiever and I, I wanted to achieve the best result I could. This is maybe jumping ahead in the conversation, but have you somehow managed to make your weaknesses become your strengths or the stuff you love more? Or are your strengths back then still your strengths today? If I'm completely honest, I think my strengths back then are still my strengths today. In a way, I I, I moved away from my strengths, which was um, reading notes and um, playing mallet percussion. So when I was in uni and when I went to Holland to study, I did a lot of multi-pieces and I did a lot of things outside of my comfort zone. Um, but what I come back to now as a professional is is the, in a way, the ease of playing mallet percussion pieces because they're both easy for me to play because I can read them very easily and I can get around the instruments very easily. But I also just like, this is such an, I, I don't think anyone else would probably say this who you talk to, but I just can't be bothered with big setups. Like I just, I just don't want another setup in my life. I sort of did that. And that's, that's it <laughs> for me. <laughs> and I've got kids and my life's really complicated. And every time I see something more than a tom tom and a cymbal mixed with a mallet instrument, I'm like, no, get the piece away from me. <laughs> it sounds like the classic midlife crisis. I'm just being completely honest. I'm a bit embarrassed about it and I'm going red. Uh, that resonates with me as well. Like this, this kind of uh, the practical side of being a musician just um, takes such a toll on your, your, your life. Especially percussion. Like there was even a period, you know, that period you might still be in it where before you have kids where you agree to playing all these wacky pieces where you need to like spend hours driving around trying to find the the particular length of like boat metal that's going to be the perfect guiro like I played this piece by Felipe Waller and I couldn't like the the time that it took to find all the freaking bits versus the actual like I want satisfaction I want my satisfaction to come from the music. Like I don't actually get satisfaction from finding the bits anymore. So I I just want to like get down to it and play the music. And probably I should have been a violinist, I think. 
Yeah, because at the end of the day, marimba isn't isn't that uh, easy to put in a pocket either. But no, yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree with that. In some sense, I still have that um, urge in me to find the perfect uh, piece of metal and the perfect mallet and whatever. I'm a sound nerd still, after two kids and, and no time, basically. Of course, I prioritize sound. Like you can't not. I mean that that's why we do what we do. Um, yeah. But I've always been that person who doesn't care about like which mallets you use or what the snare drum head is or like I'm not that kind of orchestral nerd who like cares about the brands and stuff. It's like if it sounds good, I'm happy and that's what I'm looking for. But um, it's kind of liberating to get older and be able to admit that. (laughs) Uh, Totally. Okay. Um, That was a bit of a sidetrack maybe, but uh, let's go back to your, can you tell us a little about your um, years as a student? Um, You lived for a while in in the Netherlands and I think also London. I actually, well, I lived in the Netherlands for seven years, but I just spent a lot of time in London. So I never actually lived in London. The first time um, we met I, was on a pub in London, I think, uh, London, East London, after a concert at this um, in the warehouse, I think. The warehouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was talking to someone about that the other day and I hadn't, those were such awesome concerts. God, that was a long time ago. Um, yeah, I, I did spend, I did a lot of gigs in the UK um, and I, it was such a a rich time, like in terms of opportunities, and I feel like I, I would ne- I would wouldn't have my time again. Like, and it was, it's a long time ago now. It was from nineteen ninety nine to two thousand and six, so it's not exactly yesterday. But um, they were, in a way, the formative years. Like, I think those were the years that shaped me as both a person and a musician you know I had my freedom it was risky it was hard it was the first time I lived out of home I had teachers who pushed me very far including Peter Prommel, Jan Pustjens, um, Richard Janssen in Rotterdam and I did competitions which I was successful in so I had great opportunities as well and I, I met lots of people and I got to work with percussion group The Hague a lot and lots of ensembles around Europe. So it was, it was a time of, yeah, just so many opportunities. And I, and, and I developed a lot, I would say, as a musician during that time, mostly I would say in relation to um, my stage presence, like not stage presence, but like how, how am I going to communicate the music further than just my interpretive understanding of the music so how can I use being a percussionist to my like to the actual kind of limits of what we can do physically and that's and I'm always been the person who hates the like girl with the long hair who like flashes it around or like does like those people who do those big arm movements oh my god that's so annoying it's not helping the music it's just being like a circus act so the thing that I learned in Holland was how to make my movements and my physicality affect both the sound and how the audience perceived the music. And I, and I feel like that was a really, really important development in my, yeah, in becoming a professional musician who understood, like, what I wanted to do with music, you know. That's super interesting. Was there a certain kind of methodology you applied to achieve that when you say how the audience receives the music that's a bit of a um, psychological or you know perceptive gamble maybe or how do you how can you calculate those things or how can you even work around that what I find a lot with my students 
but all musicians actually in the most part is that I'd feel like they're not really in touch with how their physical energy affects the perception of music from an audience's perspective. So I'm only really talking about live situations where they can see you play, right? And I'm and again, I would never I would never suggest someone makes a movement um just because it looks good. But what my teachers did, which was really interesting, and I've never really talked about this before, except in lessons that I teach, I guess, but um, they, they said, you know, we, we, we'll video you. And that was really awkward because it was before the time of phones and you had to do it on the cameras and everything. It was such a hassle. And I hated watching myself. And, they, and he, Richard was always like, just push yourself like three times past the place that it feels comfortable in terms of the movements that you're making and, and like going close to the marimba to say, if you're playing soft or whatever the movement is, just do it much more extreme than you feel comfortable, watch it. And you'll see that it's probably not that extreme. And then you can draw it back to the place that you feel comfortable. And I've really worked a lot with that. I think through my career, like, cause I was always quite an expressive performer and I won this thing in, in, Australia called Young Performers just before I went to Europe. So that was like a, you know, like a soloist competition kind of thing. So I I knew how to perform, but that was just my natural way of knowing how to perform. So being able to analyze it and really be in control of how the interpretation that you're making of the music is also, is also embodied I find really interesting. Did you work with uh, people beyond music for that, like choreographers or dancers or other? I did a bit, and I've and directors. I've always been really interested in dance and um, collaborating with dancers as well. I'm not like I'm not a dancer at all, and um, but I did do this um, really interesting collaboration a few years ago in Australia called Recital with a dancer and um, sort of I, I created the music with another composer together. And then it was just me and a dancer on stage. And so I had to do quite a lot of physical things with him. We did a lot of like running and things together. Um, And, you know, I would say in retrospect, I definitely was not in my comfort zone, (laughs) although a lot of people enjoyed it and, and said that it was great. And you can watch the video of it online. But I... I I think I do those things more to sort of push myself out of my comfort zone on purpose. Like I'm not to say I would ever really feel comfortable pretending to be a dancer. I'm definitely not. But I like what it teaches me as a musician in terms of not being comfortable because that's the interesting thing about getting older. You, You tend to get, you can get comfortable because you know yourself, you know what you're good at, you know what you like. And so it's that constant thing of pushing past that, you know important can you say something about how you managed to maneuver all the different inputs from your teachers um in holland um at the time and how you kind of keep your own uh, authenticity throughout that process when when you get information all this feedback i think there's a period where you have no idea what what your voice is you know like you're just you're just trying to work it out and you're so especially as a postgraduate student you think i should i should feel stronger in my sense of what it is that I want to be and you just don't at all because you've got like Richard Janssen's in in Rotterdam saying like go 300% and like just being really full on about everything and just saying like 
Like I did the Trump percussion competition and he was like, okay, you're doing Rogashanti by James Wood and it's a massive setup and I don't know how you're going to set it up in time. So let's put it on, on pallets and we can use the forklift to take it out onto the stage and like just all these full on harebrained ideas. And I was always just like, that's never going to work. <laughs> oh my God. So I had to set that up, you know, in the moment that was really freaking stressful. And then Hans Landers, who's a conductor now, and he was much more laid back, but really, really never said anything. So the Dutch thing of like not of having to prove yourself before he ever said a compliment that felt like it took forever. And that was, again, I felt like it was probably good for me in the long term, but it was hard work at the time. Um, and eventually he came around to me. So that was kind of good. But then in, then in Amsterdam, I had Peter Prommel, who's kind of like Richard, who's just really full on teacher who just has a million and one ideas and, and is quite forceful about what, what he thinks you should do. And then Jan Pustjens, on the other hand, who I was too scared to have snare drum lessons with because I was worried I wasn't good enough and I was worried that he was going to judge me so badly. And, and I didn't, and I wasn't a very good snare drum player at that point. And, you know, he's passed away now, but I am so thankful that I just, I put my ego aside and I just went, it doesn't matter if he bashes you up mentally, like this is going to be good for you. And I did it. And I'm so glad because like, I still don't love playing snare drum. I'm not an orchestral snare drum player, but the fact that I have that technique means I can play rebonds really well and I can play all the multi-pieces really well. And I didn't have that before he was my teacher. So I think something like the situation with Jan was, that was easy in the end because like he taught me the things I needed to know and I did the work and I, and I, and I got the technique and that's great. Someone like Peter is more complex because it's, it's more like, it's a more an emotional teacher student relationship because he's kind of a full on person. And yeah, so that for me, sometimes you can't, you can't work out who you are really as a musician and a person until you've left them, <laughs> you know, like can't gone out of the womb and then you have the freedom to go, well, I know that my teacher always said I should use six different pairs of marimba mallets in this piece, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'm just going to use one and sometimes go to the tips if that's what I want to do, you know, and, and feeling like you can make those decisions for yourself because you're not being judged anymore. And that's, it's quite liberating, I think. Going back to Australia was, I think it was harder than I thought it would be because I'd worked really hard during the time I was overseas to come back. Um, and do I, cause I won that competition, I was doing concertos with the orchestras and stuff. So that was great because it, it did mean, and I still had contact with ensemble offspring with my group and I played with them when I came back. But the thing is you haven't actually been in, in the scene for a long time and also not really as a professional ever. So that was really confronting kind of that thing that I think a lot of students have of, will I ever get work? Like, what if the phone doesn't ring? And, and that just used to freak me out so bad because I knew I didn't want to just fall into teaching and, and fill up my time with only teaching, which does happen a lot in Australia. And so I did some crazy things. Like we just had the football final here on yesterday and there's this group called the Rabbitohs that Russell Crowe was managing. So he's a famous Australian actor and, I, and one of my friends convinced me to join the Rabbitohs Drum Corps. 
where we played at the football matches. So, so because, you know, this would be work and it was actually quite well paid, but I hated it so much. <laughs> and I was, every time I was at the football, cause I don't like football. I was like, what am I doing here? This is, and then luckily I got pregnant. And so I couldn't wear like the drum on my belly anymore. And I was like, see ya, <laughs> I'm going now. I never want to do this again. Um, so it was definitely hard for quite a few years. And the way I dealt with it, which is kind of how I, I guess dealt with my whole life is by helping to organize on some loft spring and, and, and becoming more of an organizer with Damien, the then artistic director and take sort of becoming an artistic director with him, which meant that I could control schedules. I could control repertoire. I, and yes, I'm probably a control freak, but I, I didn't want to be waiting for the phone to ring. Like I just, I didn't want to be that kind of orchestral musician that I'm not really at all. Um, just waiting to, to see if I was popular or not. I, I wanted to like organize the stuff myself. So for me, this, this road works the best by far, because also when I have kids, I can, I, I'm not like linked to, to some other schedule that I have to work around. Like I, I make it the thing that kind of suits me the best. And yeah, it just works. You see, you are a very organized person and that, that kind of thing is easy for you. That also resonates with me, by the way. It's kind of uh, a bit, you know, um, impatient. Very, very. I think of myself as efficient, but sometimes to the limit where it isn't necessarily healthy. Uh, yeah. What you have to learn, or or what? What about that sort of strength is a weakness uh, when building an ensemble and when operating within the group? Uh, all those, you know, social psychology that goes on. Uh, what other qualities did you have to develop in order to function not only as an artistic director but as a co-musician as a colleague as a collaborator mm. within offspring I, yeah I think I'm definitely impatient by nature very and I I COVID's been quite good for me to to that enforced kind of like patience but um I think also as you get older and again being a parent I think helps a bit as well patience with other people is super important like you can't cut other people off. You can't walk all over them all the time. Like they have to have a voice. They have to have a say. They have to feel, you know, like like it's an equal kind of footing. And so while I, I do make the decisions in the most part of the repertoire that we play and stuff and I lead rehearsals because I think um, you can waste a lot of time if you don't have someone kind of pushing things forward, um, I'm very aware of making sure people are heard and and you know for us it's just been this very slow process of creating this combination of personalities that just works and and once you find that it's very easy to keep going with those people because everyone's happy <laughs> you know like there's a lot of contentment there I think it was harder in the early days when there were these kind of people sticking out who it made it really hard work sometimes. And, and then I didn't enjoy it. And then I felt really frustrated. Like how, how do we push through this? So I think there's been many, you know, the ensemble has been going for 25 years. So seven of those years without me, but um, yeah, there's been a lot of different phases and I'm, I feel like, you know, while it's hard getting old, <laughs> 
I mean, I just turned 46. Um, so I'm not that old, but I'm, I'm older. Um, the good thing that comes with it is, is a kind of internal comp, like a quiet confidence, I guess, you know, I talk a lot, but I, I definitely don't feel like I have to talk all the time. And, and, and this sort of respect that you, that, that you have for your colleagues and they have for you, I think that's really important within within your ensemble did you have um when you say someone's like not really belonging do you just say hard luck mate and um see you later or you swap that member or do you kind of yeah. bring the person in and include it somehow? eventually or? we had we've had to do that a few times you you try hard and sometimes they're you know ment- mental issues um that really you know people people are complex characters you know especially artists and I think we tend to take things on ourselves like what did I do to offend that person and and actually the better question is what sort of place is that person in at the moment you know is it is it a good place probably not and if they're acting that way it's probably not just your you who's doing it to them you know and so I think being more self-aware in that way, it's it, it's been really hard for me because I take things very personally and I, I don't want to offend people, but I'm also very direct. So in, in realizing that if you're going to be direct and if you're going to say what you think, then sometimes you are going to rub people up the wrong way and you are going to offend people. And that that's part and parcel of being a leader. You know, like you can't be a, a strong leader and make everyone happy. And, and I think that that's just an important um, realization that, that if that's your calling, um, you have to kind of, you have to be strong and, and, and you can't, you can't think that everyone's going to like you because that doesn't happen all the time. From what I gather you, you're less and less interested of just being, um, of just comforting everyone. So you want to, the older you get, you want the processes maybe to be a bit smoother and um, not have a lot of conflict in a process because say you want to focus on the result and the kind of the organization part has to be professional, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the older you get, the less time you have in your life, <laughs> the time that's ticking away till you die, but also like the hours in a day. <laughs> Very cheerful perspective. Yeah. <laughs> but um like like I said, my priority is when I'm in a rehearsal, if that ever happens again, hopefully it will soon, or if I'm practicing, I want to be doing that like 100%. Like I don't want to be thinking about other things. I don't want to be dealing with other things. I want to be like enjoying the, the act of making music. And I think um, there are so many other things in life that are constantly trying to pull you away from that. And, and to, to sort of be able to cherish both that, the, the rehearsal side of it, but also performing. And, you know, I think COVID's shown us all. I, I was thinking before COVID, maybe I, I should give up performing, just to be honest, because I spend so much time doing administration and, and I'm good at it. I, I sort of like it. And I thought, you know, maybe my life would be simpler if I just, if I just focus more on that. And I didn't really play so much anymore, but oh my God, I missed it so much. And that for sure made me realize I'm good at it. I have a calling. I'm, I, I think I'm good at communicating like v- verbally on stage, but also through music. And, and I feel like my big calling in life is to, is to alter the way people perceive new music and, and not 
come at it in a kind of judgmental way of thinking, well, I don't understand this, so therefore I'm not going to like it. And, and I sort of feel like until I die, I, I will not give up on that sort of, <laughs> and I have to do that as a performer. Like if I don't use my skills as a performer, then it's kind of a wasted opportunity, I think. There's something about all these hours we put in that um, is so ingrained in every fiber of your your body. Like the, for me at this point, like almost therapeutical to to just practice alone in a room because it reminds you of all that work you put in, and it's a place of happiness in a sense. Yeah. Well, we didn't actually talk about that before, but um, the thing when I was in Holland, I I practiced like seven hours a day, like like a stupid amount, like you can't possibly actually focus for seven hours. And, and I remember my teacher saying, Claire, you've got to get better at like score studying, like just practicing with a score. And I remember the, the sort of the turning point of, I could never do it as a student, by the way, because I always had the instruments there. And the only time when I learned how to do just score studying and practicing in my head was when I became a professional and I was on the road and I, and I just didn't have access to instruments. So I had to do it. And now Funnily enough, I prefer sitting down with scores because I feel like I practiced so much in my life that I can visualize everything. Like I can work out every sticking, just do it. And, and I find that's my happy place, just sitting with scores and not even playing. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. And also my point was a bit of this kind of just taking the time to be uh, inefficient and unproductive and just enjoying that time uh, with the score or with, with the instrument, whatever it is. Uh, it had nothing to do with business or with emailing or with being efficient or being clever.
I, I feel very passionately about gender equity at the moment and I think probably forever. I think even I feel embarrassed that it's only just kind of come to me in the last five years or so, the importance of it. You know, we all grow up um, playing pieces by dudes and or we grew up playing pieces by dudes and we it, it just didn't even occur to us because no one ever said anything. We just did it. I grew up playing piano, only playing pieces by dudes. And then percussion, pretty much the same. Like Keiko Abe was pretty much the only piece, um, maybe a bit of Sariaho, that I played as a student by a female composer. And so when I realized, well, the first thing that happened was in 2017, Ensemble Offspring programmed all female composers. And so that was a big turning point for our programming because we also commissioned, I think, 17 composers that year. So we suddenly had all this new repertoire. Um, I think that was the Andrea Keller year, actually. We suddenly had all this new repertoire and we um, it me- meant that all our programming after that, we had pledged to do 50-50, so equitable programming. And it tends to be more female composers now because they're the composers who we got to know that year and either we couldn't program them, we couldn't fit them in or there were still more commissions coming or whatever. It was a very fertile kind of opportunity to discover all this new music that we'd never had the chance to program. And so if anyone says, oh, quotas are stupid, I I would beg to differ because if you want to make change quickly, you have to force the process. And so that was us forcing the process and it's definitely worked for Ensemble Offspring. But the strange thing is that with repertoire as a percussionist, what you do is you, um, you go through life sort of, you know, building up your repertoire. And if all the repertoire you've built up is by guys, except for maybe two pieces by Keiko Abe and Kaya Sariaho, then you're a bit stuffed because like you spend all the years learning that music and then that's your repertoire kind of other than a few new things that you play. And so when I realized that I had hardly any pieces by female composers in my repertoire and I had been commissioning music as a soloist in the last 10 years, but mostly not by female composers, I was quite embarrassed, I have to say. And so my Rhythms of Change project that I've just launched, that came on the back of that because it was knowing that what we did with Ensemble Offspring in 2017 really worked and knowing that if I commissioned a whole CD or more of marimba and vibraphone works by Australian composers, but not just that, pieces for secondary school and and early tertiary students so they could easily include these pieces in their repertoire and they could become more conscious of gender equity in their recital programming, then that would be the way that we could make quicker change. So that's what I've done. <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll be interested to see if it works. I mean, the pieces which are about to come out on CD um, are really good, I think. So I'm, it's not very often that you do a commissioning project and you are happy with every single piece that comes out of it. But I am in this instance. I worked very closely with the composers on the level and trying to make sure that the pieces weren't too hard, which I find very difficult, especially on marimba, because most composers don't really understand how to write for marimba if they're not marimba players. And then that's where my Australian marimba composition kit happened because I realised that no one had ever really spent much time 
explaining to composers how to write for marimba. And of course, they don't really know because I couldn't even explain it myself, really. So that was a really hard process because I had to work out for myself how to explain well to composers in a sort of systematic way how to write for the marimba. And I have no idea if it's going to be helpful or if it will mean that that non-percussionists can write music that is more idiomatic for the marimba. But I thought, well, you know, if I don't give it a go, then it might never happen. So that just came out too. And that's free on my website, a free resource. And I wanted to make it free because... Well, as we know, there's no money to be made in this industry. So <laughs> just make sure that the music gets better. That's all I care about. <laughs> Can you tell us something about how you um, made your selection process for this? Will, will there be more volumes? How is this project going to keep developing? I think um, it will definitely keep developing because every time I go and look at my duo list, so I, I love chamber music, so flute and percussion, saxophone and percussion, clarinet and percussion, double bass and percussion, whatever. I'm always just like, oh my God, there's no pieces by women. This is terrible. So that's when I decided to collate my female composition list on my website. So at least people could kind of like go, it's sometimes it's, you just need a little reminder. Oh yeah, I'll check out that composer's music. She's written quite a lot for my instrument. So there I would definitely continue. Um, I'm thinking of doing like some more international commissions and then some duo commissions. And so that'll probably be a sort of part two. But for part one, I really wanted to just collaborate with composers who I'd worked with before, um, both emerging and established and, and people who I knew just sort of had an understanding of the instrument on some level. So the only percussionist was Brie Van Rijk and she wrote me a vibraphone solo with like Super Ball and all this fun stuff. It's very cute, very, very cute piece. Um, so that was easy because she, she's a percussionist, so she could just write it for herself. And when <laughs> we did it, you know, we did a bit of workshopping, but that was good. The, the piece, the other pieces, especially the marimba pieces, they required a lot of back and forth, um, a lot of editing, a lot of getting rid of notes and, you know, you know the drill. But um, I think, you know, I don't like to do things by halves. And so for me, making sure that a high school student in the most part couldn't say, oh, no, I'm not going to play that piece because it's too hard. Um, And as we know, marimba pieces tend to be too hard just because they're badly written, not because they're actually too hard. Um, yeah, I just, I just, it's just really important to me also because I don't love practicing that much and I don't want to play a piece that's good, like velocities. I don't want to, I don't want to have velocities in my repertoire. It's just too hard. (laughs) No, that's a bad example. Merlin, Merlin's the hardest. I hate that piece. (laughs) I'm actually not the best marimba player in the world. Like, you know, I think to be the best marimba player in the world, you have to practice every day as a professional for hours. Don't you reckon? Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a kind of a sports of its own, in a sense. For me, too monocultural. Um, as a percussionist, I really appreciate the, the multitude of things. And I, yeah. Yeah. The reason I am, uh, I never commissioned anything for, for marimba alone. Um, 
So yeah, I'm. I find myself more in the multi world, also including all sorts of electronics and sort of yeah. uh, anything goes. finding gigs how to get into the scene you came into an organization that you said was already 10 years old when you when you got into it if you what if you build something from scratch would it would it look different then or i i played in the first concert of that organization so i was always in it like i was always a member but i wasn't the artistic director but i don't think it would look different because i've you know molded it to be the thing that i want it to be and there are so many elements that go into that one of the biggest one being fundraising and and grant writing and and finding money to be able to make the art and there's many times where it's very frustrating um and you don't always get the grants and there's a lot of time going into grant writing but at the end of the day i think the the autonomy that you have through that for me it makes it worthwhile because you you know it's not for everyone and and for for a lot of people it's much easier waiting for the phone to call to ring and and that's that's great like if that makes you happy doing those gigs and you have lots of work then it's great but for me i i really always thought I need to take this into my own hands. And I think it's a combination of the fact that I'm not really an orchestral musician by nature. That's not really me. Um, and I like a real range of activity. So I like playing solo recitals. I like playing chamber music. I like playing concertos with orchestras. So I like doing all those different things. 
And so, you know, I don't have an agent for all my solo stuff. And when I was in Holland, I sort of tried that a little bit. And it's really hard as a percussionist because we're very, you know, we're on the outer as a solo instrument. We're, of course, we're not the, we're not like a violinist or a, or a singer not, or a pianist. We're not going to get booked every week by an orchestra. And so while if I'd stayed in Holland... I, I probably could have made it as someone more like Colin Curry, but I, 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 it's a lonely life. Like I never wanted to play with orchestras every week because chamber music is so much more satisfying actually. And it's really fun playing concertos because you know, you're the center of attention and, but if you did it too much, it'd probably not be good for your ego either. I'd say. <laughs> so for me, I do, I do like a handful of concertos a year, a handful of solo recitals a year because that's enough for me to to move all the marimba and stuff. I, I don't want to be moving a five-octave marimba every week. And then when Ensemble Offspring and all the chamber music gigs I do, I, don't, I tend to program vibraphone and multi stuff more because, again, the five-octave marimba just does my head in. Like It's like you get too old for moving that thing all the time. I'm giving myself 10 more years, and then, and yeah. then it's not, it's not yeah. really like a cool thing for a woman to be schlepping around a five-octave marimba anymore. Last question. You have 25 years behind you as a professional. What are the next 20 years going to be like uh, and why? Oh, that's a, that's a tricky question because all I knew was that I put a 10-year limit on schlepping a marimba. So I think... Definitely the next 10 years, I'm, I want to go hard because I think I'm in my prime, you know, like this is the time to go hard as a leader, go hard with gender equity and making sure the world is more aware of their, their decision making in programming. You can't make anyone do anything, of course, and, and nor should you, but you can bring awareness to a topic and, and that's what I really want to do. I want to inspire younger musicians to, to, to love this music as well and, and to not just play tonal, I call it tonal crap. Tonal crap by percussionists. I just, I can't stand it. And I just, I just want people to be more open-minded in their, in their concept of what percussion music can be and that really starts in a bachelor degree kind of time and, and earlier. So I want people to be more open-minded. I want them to play weird ass music. I want them to try improvisation and, you know, and so this idea that um, just promoting open-mindedness in, in music making, I think, and then, and then not just students, but I want audiences to come along on the ride and go, this isn't confronting Australia. We're very behind Europe in terms of what audiences are willing to buy tickets to and listen to. And if they haven't heard of composers, they, they won't tend to come. And so, you know, it, it feels like a real goal to get, to get audiences listening to this, this, I, I call it living new music. So music composed in our lifetimes. And so that's my big kind of um, task over the next 25 years is just, one kind of audience member at a time in a way change their perception of what this music is and and can mean to them and and I think it's so exciting but so many people are just a bit behind the eight ball about that and um, I'm really excited by the prospect of 
of changing changing the perception of, of music and, and, and broadening audiences. And, you know, in orchestras and, and all over, like not just in our little niche of, of chamber music. I think that's really... I think it can happen. I'm not sure if it'll happen in Australia before I die, but but hopefully what I do will be like a, a step in the right direction. <laughs> I think we mentioned death like four times in the podcast, so it's uh, it's very... <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you like before Maybe I because I'm in isolation. <laughs> <laughs> Solitude and death. And, uh... Yeah, um, shit. Okay, um, I had a little follow-up question. I'm, I'm not sure we need it, but you, you mentioned this kind of... Uh, like from the bottom up, kind of building a community for your music. Whereas in the media, this music hardly exists, right? If you go, if you look at all the big public channels, uh, does it mean you believe the only way to build a community or an audience is like in building up from the bottom up, individual by individual? Have we given up this whole public uh, media segment? You use your your own internet channel, perhaps to to spread the word, kind of uh, in a more global sense, but. Uh, um have you have, have we given up on the record companies and the radios and the tv stations and all that have we just we I, kind of left that scene like uh, definitely and i mean with ensemble offspring we we do that a lot like we we use social media and we use uh facebook advertising to try and spread the word outside of our our you know inner circle and that's really important you you don't just want to be preaching to your inner circle but at the same time i feel like you have to kind of do both but put more of your energy in the ground up and then just see see what gets traction on the other side. Not worry about it too much, not spend too much energy because you can't really control that side of things. I, I did spend quite a lot of time in my career recording music that I knew would get played on ABC Classic FM, which is our classical music station here in Australia. And in a way that was a little bit... Um, I did that on purpose because I knew that if I got my recordings played on the radio, that it would help both with my, you know, knowledge of my brand and who I was in Australia, but also the music would be played, would get out the music of Australian and international living composers. And so definitely I've been quite strategic with decisions like that. But at the same time, I now I, I don't think... I, I wouldn't tend to make decisions only for that reason because they're like that radio station could just keel over and die next year. You know, like they might pull the funding from it. There's a very good chance, you know, if the Australian government is not, is very liberal, which is not the American liberal um, <laughs> conservative. And it's very, um, It just doesn't put any money into the arts. So I feel very much like you've got to put your energy in the places that you can control. Mm -hmm. 